Um, just take a moment of silence. I don't know if you've had a moment to be quiet this week and to quiet your heart and mind. But just take a moment to observe what's going on within you. And just take a moment of some deep breaths. If you're someone who prays, would you ask God to speak to you? Whether you're here full of faith or coming with doubt, would you ask God to make this moment um, impactful, meaningful to you? Well, Jesus, we pray that you would do what you want in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Uh, well, today, we uh, I, what I want to do today is I want to explore. Oh, you know what, Veronica, you were supposed to read a scripture. And um, so I forgot because we did things a little differently. Could you, could you come up and read from Job chapter 1 for us, please? Yeah, you, you can use that, I think. Uh, Today's scripture is from the book of Job, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have, um, I apologize, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and the herds around spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then. Everything he has is in your hand, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. The Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The word of the Lord. 
All right, thanks, Veronica. Um, so, Job, I, you know, I was thinking about this. I don't think I've ever taught on the book of Job at Monsieur de Lincoln Square. Um, I think I've avoided it because it is a very complex book. Uh, it's, a, it's not a book. I've had people go through suffering, and, and they've been like, you know, I think I'm going to read the book of Job because I'm going through I'm like, that's not a good idea. Like, don't do that. Uh, Job is a very complex book. Let me just give a little background to you first, and um, we'll dive in. And uh, first, Job is one of the most ancient texts ever written. It's one of the most ancient literature pieces and probably one of the most brilliant literature pieces for its age of antiquity of any kind, written around 5th century B.C. Um, Some say written older than Genesis, so if you had a Bible in a chronological order, Job would be the very first book placed. Um, Some people believe it was an oral tradition passed down through Moses and that was later redacted or added to as it went on. Um, and then it is up for debate also, just FYI, uh, if Job was actually a historical figure. Um, you know, m- maybe if you come from a tradition where Job is always taught as a historical figure, um, there's a lot of good reasons to uh, show that he was not a real figure. It was more of a parable. Um, for example, when at the very end, spoiler alert, Job gets double back all that he had. He somehow gets like 10 random kids and gets double his wealth out of nowhere. Like, I, you know, so there's, God can do anything, but there's just a lot of things in the way it was written that lead to believe that maybe this was a, a parable. Um, but at the same time, it could have happened, could have been a real man that got oral tradition that stretched through history. But um, the story kind of goes like this, and it's, it's considered wisdom literature. Um, you know, so Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, these are all the wisdom genres of the Bible. And I, I thought it was important to teach on this today because as I was sitting with it, I felt like, you know, in, the, in a world that has, where deconstruction is such a buzzword, it's interesting to me because this book is really all about deconstruction. If you think about it, reconstructing faith and de- deconstructing formal beliefs and images about God. So that, that's nothing new. That's going back to 5th century BC for those who feel like something new is happening with that conversation. If you're new to that word, it just means people who are, you know, tearing down certain things that they believe um, and deciding should they re-believe anything else. And so here, uh, Job is going through a lot of suffering. Let me give you kind of the backstory. The first issue here is is Job is uh, just a man that's blessed. It's, he's blessed with like a thousand donkeys, all these cattle, ten kids. He, he, he's, he's a very wealthy man. And um, there's a conversation in the councils of heaven between God and what the Scripture says, the Satan. Now, that in this context was not like Satan automatically. Like we, can't, we kind of assume it's Satan reading back the New Testament into the Old Testament, but that's not what was happening here. Satan didn't just have access to like the board of directors of heaven. This was kind of like this thing that was happening. This is like this board of angels, like this council of the most intimate of Yahweh's counselors. And one of them, the Satan, literally means the opposing one. So basically, it's like one of the angels who was an opposing one said to God, God was kind of like bragging on Job. He's like, look at Job, this guy. I mean, he's like, he was like bragging on his favorite kid. He's like, makes all A's. I mean, look at him. He's like, he he obeys me. He does everything. He's very righteous, the most righteous person on earth that follows me and loves me. it, It even talks about his piety. I don't know if you noticed. He's like, he's made sacrifices for his kids just in case one of them sinned. He's like, I'm going to make sacrifices for my kids just in case one of them made a mistake. Um, and atone for them. And uh, one of the, the opposing ones, Satan says, yeah, the only reason he blesses you 
is because you've given him so much. He's like, take away all of his stuff, and let's see what he's really made of. And what's interesting here is uh, God kind of takes him up on the bet. God's like, okay, let's see. I'll take you up on that bet, which that has a lot of problems for us, I'm sure, theologically, of like, is God up there messing with me right now with Satan, the opposing angel? Let's don't get there yet. Remember, it could be parable. But here, um, Job, everything that Job has is taken away. Everything that he, all of his family, all of his 10 kids die, all of his wealth is destroyed, and he still worships God. The famous phrase, naked I came from, from my womb, and, and, and naked I will return. You know, you give and you take away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Like, how, I praise you for the things you've given me. I'm going to also praise you for when you take things away. Here he says there, the Lord gave and he's taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So here we see Job's response. So the Satan says, the reason he's still praising you is, not, is because you haven't really messed with him yet. Like, you've taken away his stuff, but you really haven't. He's still fine. God's like, okay, fine. So then Job gets these boils and breaks out in suffering himself. And then for 30, those are the first two chapters. And then for 36 chapters, it's Job's three friends explaining to him, I'm going to give you the, like, Brian Fulton summary version. It's basically three friends going like, Job, we ha- I don't know how to say this, but something's going on. And I know that, like, you probably didn't do anything, but, like, just tell us what you did to deserve it. Like, so you had to do something. Just come on, tell us. And Job's like, I'm telling you, I've been asking myself the same thing. I don't know what I did. And they're like, I get it, Job, but look, we're safe here. We're your friends. You can tell us what you did because we need to, you had to do something to break out in boils. What I want to show you is that in that time, their friends were not doing anything. Everything they were saying was orthodox. Everything they were saying was true to the faith that in that time, God was a transactional character, right? Remember Abraham? I will bless you, and if you are bless me, I'll bless you and make you a, a name great. Like Their view was that if you had suffering, it was because you did something wrong. So their view was the dominant orthodox view of the, of the Juda- Judaic religion at the time. They were in the right to be wondering. And Job was understanding. He's like, yeah, of course, I get it. So that's the, that's the setup. Now, back to Job 1. I'm going to show you something kind of neat that um, Peter Inns, um, who has a podcast called The Bible for Normal People, um, which if you want to check it out, you're welcome. But he talks about in here, it breaks down some of the Hebrew that's going on. It's kind of interesting that the word for bless, which is the Hebrew word Barak, which is where we get, you know, Barack Obama's name is, is to bless, the name bless. So the word bless, it happens eight or nine times. And sometimes it's translated curse and other times it's translated bless. But it's the exact same word in Hebrew. So the context kind of tells us what's going on. So God says, look at Job, he barocks me all day long. And then the opposing one says, yeah, the only reason he barocks you, blesses you, because you've given him all this stuff, take away his stuff, and he'll barock you to your face. In other words, he'll, he'll curse you to your face. He'll, he'll, he'll bless you back. Like, he'll curse you. And so there's this exchange going on. It's interesting because, you know, God, God says, fine. He, 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 he takes away all his stuff. And, and then um, Job actually barocks God. He actually blesses him. And then he has the boils, and, and we're like, well, let's see what he does. 
And there's this sense of like where Job's wife speaks up and she wants Job to do what the accuser has wanted him to do. She says this phrase, curse God and be done with and be done and die. But traditionally, now I don't know what she meant by this, but if you think about that's the same word, what if she was saying something else? Maybe she was saying curse God and die. And that's a whole nother like marriage sermon. Like how do you handle like your spouse saying like you curse God? He's like, no, I want to bless God. But She's saying the word Barak. So she, what if she was saying, what if we've gotten it wrong? You know, Peter N says, what if she was saying, bless God one more time. Barak God one more time and bless him and then die. So maybe she was being this spouse that's supportive. Now, we don't know for sure. Conventionally, it's been understood as curse God and die. But she might be saying, you're persistent in your integrity, Job. She gives him communion. She's with him in the suffering. Could we read this wife as like, Job, you're my dear husband. You're amazing. And after all this, you've maintained your integrity. Bless God one more time and die. Which one is it? I think that the author does this a lot in this book, but I think he's intentionally leaving it vague because this is a a practice of deliberate ambiguity that Jewish writers would do often of us as the readers going, which one will he do? Will he bless God and 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 um and die, or will he curse God? We see that he never curses God. He gets in God's face a lot. He never gets an answer. And we readers are looking at Job and reading this book, and we are confronted with the same question: Why do you do all this religious stuff? Do you do it because you think you're going to get something of it from God, or are you doing it because God is God, and that's the end of the question? Like, why do we believe God? And what do we believe when bad things happen? Do you keep going? Do you keep loving God? Or, or do you love God just because you love God? Or do you love God because he, he blesses you, because he gives you things? This is something that's very important for us, even today. It's an ancient question, but we have our own versions of this. We just kind of hide. We just kind of subconsciously deny the fact that we operate this way, right? We talk, we hear preachers talk on TV all the time, like, God has blessed America or God has cursed America because of these actions, right? There's still this transactional conversation that we have. And so for 34 chapters, his friends are speculating. His, Job demands um, that his friends demand that he explain himself. He doesn't have any kind of direct answers. And, and then finally in chapter 38, which my mentor, Dr. Robert Smith, would always preach, you may be in chapter 36 of your suffering, and he would get very elaborate, but, you know, maybe you're in 37. How long can you wait until you hear God's voice? Just a beautiful um, concept here. But 36 chapters of Job's life, he doesn't hear God speak, and then finally God speaks and is like, where were you when I created the world? Do you run this show? Can you do this better than me? Like, And so God finally begins to speak, and he gives him like a virtual tour of the universe and shows Job, 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 how great, that was what I used to read when I was like a little kid. Anybody else, Job? Um, I need a job, job. Uh, Shows Job how grand the world is. And he even talks about these two crazy beasts that he overpowers. And it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered. Yet he's able to live in a peace and fear the Lord. And God restored to him double everything that's lost. And so then again, we have to ask the question, is the, the author is having you ask the question again, is that a reward? Is that still the transactional view? You see, 
Job is helping his Israelites discover a whole new worldview where their imagination of God has been kind of shattered. This is the way it always has been, always transactional. And Job is like, no, 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 no. When you suffer, what what I think he's showing us today is when you suffer, you you might feel like you've lost faith, like your faith has failed you. you. You have a failure of faith. But what Job is showing you really is you don't have a failure of faith. You have a failure of imagination. Your imagination about God has changed. Just because your imagination of God has been shattered and that has failed to be, be worked out for you doesn't mean that your faith has been shattered. That's kind of what I want to get at, which a lot of people have called over the years, which is going to kind of transition, is dark night of the soul. So have you guys ever heard that phrase before, dark night of the soul? Dark night of the soul is kind of this, it's a little different. John, St. John the Cross was a contemplative writer. He wrote a whole book on this back in the early... I don't know, 1500s. And it's, he, he would think it, it's been known as different than depression, but you could be, you know, still have energy, still have things, but there's a sense of like, where is God? I don't feel close to God. I don't, I, I feel like my faith has failed. I don't even know if I have faith anymore. I don't even understand what's going on. And um, a good example of this is Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, uh, her, when her, writings came out after, you know, after she died, there was all this stuff on Time Magazine about how Mother Teresa may have been an atheist. Um, Because when she wrote between ages 27 to 87, 50 years, she would constantly write about how I absolutely have no felt sense of God. No felt sense of God. And she felt agnostic and so on. She didn't lose her faith, but she had no felt sense of God. And so, um, why, why, the, the reason is that this is important is that there's two, two, one Christian belief is God can be known, but he can't be captured. God can be known, but he can't be captured. Any concept you have of God is an icon, is an idol at best. Anything you, when we try to use words to describe God is love, God is just, all we're doing is putting on slides of a slideshow. That's it. When we say God is love, even that, the most powerful, what we would conceive as the most true of God, is still just a little icon on a slideshow screen. God is infinite. He's infinite. He can't be captured by a word. He can't be captured by a thought. Like, think right now of the highest number you can think of. What's the highest number anyone can think of? A trillion? Uh, Infinity, right? Like, you could be counting for billions of years because the highest number you can think of is is infinite. You can't capture or circum, circum, circumference infinity. Infinity can't be shortened. It's too big. And so we use concepts because God is so big. So we say God is love. God is a father. God provides. They're all pictures and PowerPoints. And that's a challenge of the dark night of the soul on God's part, that he hasn't revealed that to us. There's also, on our part, there's something happening. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are those who are pure in heart, they will see God. You get to see God when you're humble. But there's a failure of faith, and then, like I said, there's a failure of imagination. There's a difference. Like, imagine you went on a retreat, you're like on the spiritual high, you're walking on water, Jesus is real, and then you wake up in bed, and out of nowhere, you're like, I don't even know if I can believe this anymore. I don't even know if, I think this is all a hoax. 
I can't even imagine God's existence. I can't picture God anymore. So at one point, you had a strong imagination, and the other point, you had a weak imagination. Faith is not us imagining God. Is this registering with anybody? You can be in both of those places and have faith. You might not feel like faith, but your imagination for God is weak. Mother Teresa, she couldn't imagine God's existence, but she had deep, profound faith by the way she lived, by the way she acted, and we tend to confuse these two. Um, C.S. Lewis, one more example. He was known as, like, the greatest apologist ever, right? The greatest writer to help explain the faith. And um, he was an agnostic into adulthood. He would hang out with what's called the Inklings, which was J.R. Tolkien, Owen Barfield. Um, They would read T.S. Eliot, all these other writings, and they would discuss it. And he wrote a biography, autobiography called Surprised by Joy, which, by the way, is his wife's name, Joy Davidman. So there's a double meaning there, Surprised by Joy. But he, wrote a, he said that when he came to faith, he, was, he said it was my long walks with Tolkien where I finally believed that Christ was the real mystery, real myth, or this, this story that they were obsessed with, that he was, he was real. And he says, for the first time, I knelt down and gave my life to Christ. He says he knelt, knelt down, and, listen, and you've probably heard this before. He said, I was the most reluctant convert of all of London. So C.S. Lewis didn't kneel down and be like, oh, my God, you are real. How could this be? I love you so much. C.S. Lewis is like, no, I knelt down, and I was like, damn it, it's true. Like, that's how C.S. Lewis came to the faith. Is he, he came reluctant. He didn't. He didn't have this emotional praise of God of all blessings and the trying God, goodness of God. And so the next line in this, he says, I came to realize that the harshness of God is kinder than the softness of man. And God's compulsion is what liberates us. So I think a lot of times we think of faith coming from the head or the heart. And Mother Teresa, C.S. Lewis the head and the heart didn't really do a lot for their faith. It was like this gut, like this deep-seated place, this like uh, soul, you may call it. Um, I was barbecuing the other day, and I think I mentioned this, Fourth of July, and I remember when ribs are done, the bone, they say the meat, they tell, the bones tell you when the meat is done, right? And you see the bones, it's like your bones know. It's like this, this thing of faith is like, it's something your bones know. It's something that this deep, the, 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 they would call um, in Hebrew your gut as like this, this deep-seated place of the soul. That's where faith is. Um, it's not in your head and it's not in your feelings. And so um, this dark night of the soul, Jesus went through this, something similar. Jesus, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Um, Different from Job, this dark night of the soul is different from Job, but it's similar. Job actually did lose everything and had a very good reason to go through the dark night of the soul. Our life can be going completely fine and have a dark night of the soul. Our life can have blessing after blessing and still feel like there's a, a dark night of the soul. And um, so, what does it, what does it, what does it feel like? Um, I would say a couple of things to describe it. It's painful. Uh, there's there's this sense of surprise when you have a dark night of soul. It kind of comes out of nowhere. It's discerning, disconcerting. It catches you off guard. Like, why would this happen? It's confusing. It, 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 it can be 
disarming, and it's usually just like a surprise out of nowhere. Um, it's painful. Like it's remember? Do you guys remember Y two K when like was it like the internet was gonna die and like all of your bank accounts were gonna be gone or something like that? And then like you woke up and it's like everything was fine. Like so, imagine Dark Knight of the Soul is kind of like Y two K, except it all happens. It's like your old way of accessing God disappear is like no longer works. You're like the way I used to access God through these images, through that PowerPoint slide, that icon of God, that version of God that I used to access God no longer works. It just out of nowhere, surprise, gone. Does that register with anybody? So Y2K happens spiritually. It's gone. It's a surprise. It's confusing. It's disconcerting. And then, and then bam. And, and when you least want it, it's, it, it happens. And the Dark Knights, why do we go through this? It, it purifies us. It sanctifies us. It helps us get closer to who God is. We know each other through images, and it serves us well for a while. And then at some point, those images have to go. They no longer serve you. St. John of the Cross said this way, Learn to understand more by understanding you don't understand. Let me say that again. Learn to understand more by understanding you don't understand. So we know more by acknowledging we don't understand. <laughs> we don't understand. We don't get it. And, and, and um, there's a deep knowing through darkness. Um, theologians used to call like prayer with words and images and concepts as like cataphatic prayer. And then there's apathetic prayer, which is through your body, through your through the darkness, knowing God in the dark, knowing God by not knowing. And that's kind of what St. John is talking about. Let me give you another example, an example of this. Someone comes up to you, and they're like, I think I understand. I think I know you. I think I understand you. You're like, really? They're like, yeah, I know your mom. I know your dad. I know where you live. I know where you grew up. I know what school you went to. I know your Enneagram number. I know your Myers-Briggs type and your strength finders. I know all of those. And I, I totally know you. Do you feel known? You feel violated. <laughs> You're like, who are you? What? Now, someone's known you for a really long time, and they go up to you, and they've known you for 30 years, and they're like, you are still a mystery to me. How do you feel? You, you, you feel like I can, I, I can be myself. I can be myself. See, when, whenever we get God into a box, I know God, I understand God, you can be sure God is going to smash your box. He's going to purify us from those golden calves images. So um, just want to close with a couple of things. How do we, just practically, how do we do this? How do we go through a dark night of the soul? Um, just want to run through these, some of, some of these faster than others. Number one is expect this to happen in your life. How do we live with this reality? You need to expect that you will go through the dark night of the soul if you're not in it already right now. Um, this, is, this is something that that's, should be expected. It should be expected. Um, the, the mystic uh, poet Rumi uh, uh, wrote, uh, some days you walk on water, other days you sink like a stone. I love that. Some days you walk on water, other days you sink like a stone. It's just, it's just the reality. Second is this is a normal part of your journey. This is a normal part of your faith journey. It, it, this, is, this is always going to happen. This is a part of it. Jesus, in Galilee, all the good things were happening. Miracles, walking on water. His disciples were falling in love with Jesus. Then Jerusalem, Jesus sweats blood. He's humiliated. His disciples abandon him. 
Jesus meets us in our highs. He meets us in our lows. Thirdly, the dark night calls us to something deeper. Those images don't do it for you anymore. The image you had of God that you grew up with, it's not really doing it. It's it's not it it's it's basically has been a simplified version. And then you kind of go through this spectrum of going to a sophisticated version of faith. And then you're like, sophisticated version of faith doesn't really help me anywhere. And then you come back to go, well, you know what? I understand by not understanding. And that's maturity. Is when you can humbly say, I understand and something in my bones knows, something in my seat knows, but I don't really understand. That's faith. Um, and then fourthly, all revelation comes in ways you least expect. There's God's scripture, which is general revelation, but then his like specific re- revelation rarely comes in ways you expect him. It's a surprise, right? Like That's why God was like, welcome the foreigner in the Old Testament. Like I'm going to somehow work through this stranger. I'm going to speak. Remember in Matthew 25, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. I'm going to show up in ways that you least expect. This happened to me last night. This man, you know, I was studying for this at a coffee shop late at night, and this is a long story, but he said something to me, and I'm not going to get into it because it would take like five minutes to explain it, but it deeply impacted me. And I gave, at the time, I was like, I need to go home. I'm exhausted, but you know what? This guy, he's lonely. He's, I can tell he's, 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 he's a single elderly man, I'm, and I, I, I'm going to give him time. And he said something to bless me, and I feel like it was God's way of speaking to me. Um. This is what happens with the incarnation, right? They wanted a superstar, and we got a baby in straw. And um, the last thing I want to leave you with is with this kind of phrase is, in this, this something deeper, calling you something deeper. I want you to think think through. A lot of times, we, the questions we ask is like, what do I what do I want to do with my life? What will make me happy? Our culture is obsessed with happy. Not bad to be thinking about happy. It's normal. But there's these questions of what do I want to do? Um, you know, what, what, what's going to make me happy? But there's a deeper question is this. What do I have to do? What is that calling that I just have to do? I have to do this. It's not what will be making me happy. It's not what's going to benefit. It's not going to be what I want necessarily. But what do I have to do, right? Like, when we think through, like, if, you, if someone asks you, like, are you happy? It's kind of a tough question. Like, I hate that question. Are you happy? You're like, I'm not happy. Like, I don't know. Sometimes, maybe. Like, in my marriage, eh, a little, you know, job, eh. You know, so it, that's the wrong question. The question is, do you have meaning in your marriage? Do you have meaning in your job? Do you have meaning in where you live? What is it that you have to do? Not what do I want to do? Um, and so the dark night ultimately saves the world because we become humble and we begin to really press down deeper of that question, deeper, deeper. What do I have to do? What am I on this earth for? What do I have to do here? I'm just going to close with a couple more things. Um, Michael Buckley says this, that all atheism is a parasite of bad theism. Let me break that down. All atheism basically is a parasite that grows on bad religion. Dark nights keep purifying us. They show us our blind spots. They show us our idolatry so that we don't practice bad belief, bad religion, where atheism grows. And that's what the dark night does. And so um, 
instead of the slide of like God's like this grandfather who does magical, mystical, superpower things. What if that version of God is no longer serving you, right? What if what if God is in our breathing right here and now? What if what if Joan Osborne was right? What if God was one of us, just a stranger like one of us? What if He's right here in us? What if what if He's what if we are the coming of Christ, like the Spirit's in us? What if we're what if God's right here in us in this community? Um, so I pray that in all of this, that you will have a deeper faith. Um, I don't have like a big aha closing, but I hope something in here has helped you and served you. And let me pray as, as Damon closes. God, I pray that um, it can be unhealthy when we are just driven for more sophistication. More, more like intellectualism or analyzing. And that's an important phase to go through in our faith. But God, I pray that you would save us from that kind of sophistication at the same time to go, you know what? That's a stage we have to move from. But God, move us to a place of just knowing in our bones, knowing in our deep-seatedness, not with our head or not with our heart, but just knowing in our in our gut that you are with us. You are here. You love us. You made us. God, I pray that we would break down the projector slides that don't serve us anymore like Job. For him, it was this view of transactional God. If I'm suffering, everyone knows I must be doing something wrong. May we never be too afraid to evolve in our faith to know you more purely and truly. In Jesus' name we pray.